Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of the Grateful Dead. This is episode three, Let Me Sing Your Blues Away. It's our third episode in our journey through the eight albums in your box and the last episode where we focus on studio albums. In this installation of our Grateful Dead podcast, we're talking about 1973's Wake of the Flood and 1977's Terrapin Station. Of the four albums I'm responsible for discussing in this box set, these two definitely had significantly less blockbuster hits and more expansive technical complexity than what we saw from American Beauty or Working Man's Dead. They also didn't have the exciting live quality of Live Dead or Europe 72 to pull me in, so I didn't immediately gravitate toward them. But after speaking with some deadheads and contextualizing the albums and my growing understanding of the Dead's narrative, some of the tracks on these two albums have grown to become my favorite and the most mind-expanding tracks included in this anthology for me. To get a better understanding of these albums, I talked to Tony Brown, who was the editor and publisher of Relics Magazine for over 20 years, beginning in 1979. The second longest continuously published magazine in the U.S., Relics Magazine was launched in 1974 as a handmade newsletter devoted to connecting dead concert tapers and soon became one of the key players in dead coverage and a cornerstone space for deadheads. As both a musician herself and a longtime member of the dead community, I was excited to hear Tony's thoughts on these albums. So you mentioned that some of the tracks on Wake of the Flood are your favorite dead songs. What do you think makes that album special and what tracks stand out to you? The song Eyes of the World to me is it's almost like a mantra for ha- how we should feel and how we should all be with each other. Just wake up to find out that you are the eyes of the world. We each have a responsibility for what we do and how that affects everything around us. I love to sing that song. Um, I enjoy Half Step. It's been in my repertoire forever. And Stella Blue, all the years combine, they melt into a dream. A broken angel sings from a guitar. I weep with that song. And Weather Report Sweet and Let It Grow. Weather Report Sweet was written with Bob Weir and a friend of mine, Eric Anderson, another great musician. musician. And Let It Grow was with Weir and Barlow. So that was a kind of interesting thing. It also gave Donna and Keith their opportunity to step up. Keith being the keyboard player, he was only 32 years old. They all were young then. And Donna got to sing. They even let her do one of her songs, you know, so she sang Here Comes Sunshine. So that was really cool. So that, you know, that wasn't my favorite album or anything, but it it had some good moments. Absolutely. Especially since you brought up before various people criticizing Donna. (sighs) She's lovely. I've, I've gotten to sing with her quite a few times. I love her. Totally. It's so clear when you listen to both of these albums here, what a great talent she was. And she, she sang back up for Elvis Presley and she was a great talent. And it was really sad because when you are a woman singer and nobody really respects the singers anyway, let's face it, but the woman singer, she needed a good monitor. And I have learned thanks to her really always have a monitor. You also brought up Terrapin Station, so I have a similar question to before. What are some magical moments that stand out for you on this album? Well, 
being a good friend of Robert Hunter, who, by the way, gave me my first really good acoustic guitar, it's a Takamini. He was on the road and he wanted me to put my own lyrics to music and being the mentor to me that he was, he gave me that guitar. And things like Terrapin were brought to me, even though I heard the Grateful Dead do it, when I heard Hunter do it, I could really understand where he took that from. He'd explain stories to me about how this moment came to him and that moment came to him. There are lots of great books that Hunter wrote that I highly recommend any deadhead read. They're wonderful. They're, 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 they're the heart of the Grateful Dead, really. Robert Hunter was, the, was a member of the Grateful Dead officially in every way, except musically. Um, but um, Terrapin Station, if you ask me my favorite song, I'd say that the Terrapin Station suite, the whole thing, is my favorite. It, I love the story. Um, Bill Kreutzmann helped to arrange that song, which is very interesting. And um, I, I really like like that song pretty much over any other. I like Estimated Profit. You know, there are throwaways like Dancing in the Streets, Passenger. I love that Keith and Donna sang that song together. That was great. Samson and Delilah's good song. And the special thing for me was they allowed Donna Jean to do her song, Sunrise. That meant a lot. Again, being a woman in the scene, I was proud to see that happen. And you keep bringing up Robert Hunter, um, and you even mentioned he's your mentor. And that's really exciting, especially for me as a writer who's really drawn to a lot of Hunter's lyrics and sort of the stories these songs create. Um, and he does seem to be one of the more like mystical or mysterious figures surrounding the dead. So I was wondering if you could give us some insight into Hunter and what's really important to understand about him as you're listening to his lyrics. Well, one one of the things that always struck me about him was his serious nature. And that carried through into his music. But I learned so much about the world through his words. Um, he lived in Scotland and he lived in England. And so much of his mystical lyricism comes from those times. And again, my memory is short and of, on, on details, but I learned so much about history, life, and you can tell by the lightning around me that everything just moves through the moments that you, that you cherish. And knowing Robert Hunter was, for me, the most influential pivot of my life. He made me take myself seriously, and he insisted I do so. So I definitely got chills when the thunder boomed around Tony as she spoke about Robert Hunter, especially since one of the things that has become clear to me as I've gained an appreciation for these two albums is how miraculous a lyricist and storyteller Hunter really is. 
I also talked to David Lemieux to give me a better understanding of where the dead were at in their broader historical narrative when they recorded Wake of the Flood in Terrapin Station. How does what we hear on, on Europe 72 show up for the dead and what we hear in the next studio album in our box set, Wake of the Flood, a, a year later? Very Wake of the Flood was an album that was... It was, it, it was a very unique album in the Dead's history for a few reasons. They hadn't recorded in the studio since American Beauty. So they went three years. So they did in 1971, they released the Skull and Roses record. And again, similar to Europe 72, there are several songs on that record for which there are no studio uh, recordings. They, they decided that the versions they put on the Skull and Roses record in 71 would be the definitive versions period not live versions but the definitive versions bertha warfrat etc europe 72 they did the same thing 1973 they were about to be released they were released from their contract with warner brothers or the contract ended actually and they delivered one final record it was a live thing called uh, history of the grateful dead bears choice and then once that was done the Grateful Dead were free agents. So rather than go and sign with somebody else or re-sign with Warner Brothers, the Dead did the very bold step of starting their own record company. And, you know, you think of, I mean, I don't think of the Dead this way, but a lot of people do as kind of kind of scattered hippies. Um, but they had some really good business acumen and some very good people around them who had some great ideas. Now, Starting a record company is not easy. And so The Dead did it, and they ended up releasing three studio records and one live record on that label over the next three or four years until 1976. And it turned out it wasn't the best idea for a band whose real strength was playing live and developing live concert sound. Well, running your own record company and pressing and distributing and you know dealing with all that stuff isn't the easiest thing. But this was the first record on that on that label. So it, Rolling Stone magazine did a huge article about the dead in the fall of 73, about the business of the Grateful Dead, specifically focusing on the dead, starting out their own record company. And that was uh, Grateful Dead Records, I mean, aptly named. And they did everything in-house. They, you know, I think they worked with some regional distributors around the country, around the world, I guess. But everything else was done in-house by the Grateful Dead. They Bully Bonafide ran a record company. And Wake of the Flood was was the first record on it. And like I say, they only did four records on it. Plus, they had a second imprint called Round Records that was an imprint of Grateful Dead Records. That was for the band members' solo recordings. So Wake of the Flood, uh, again, like the previous two records, studio records, uh, Working Man's and, and American Beauty, um, had a batch of incredibly good songs, all of which, uh, with the exception of Let It Grow, and the weather report, sweet part, weirs thing, had been road tested for a long time, for uh, you know at least six or eight months, and in some cases over a year. In the case of Stella Blue, it had, it had been debuted. It debuted in June of '72, um, so they had a batch of really good songs. They'd been playing live for a long time, so they knew where they could stretch it to. Very typical of the Dead. They knew what they could do in the live setting, but what the challenge was was getting these songs, like um, you know, a song like Eyes of the World often clocked in at 13, 14, 15 minutes. So here they had to get it down to much, much shorter. Road Jimmy was another longer live song that they had to get down. Um, Mississippi Half Step. Uh, Keith Godchow sang his first and only uh, uh, studio recording with the Grateful Dead, uh, Let Me Sing Your Blues Away. So the, they had a batch of really good songs, and the key was getting them to record. And again, I 
to me, oh, here comes sunshine. There's another one. Um, again, a lot of those songs had debuted in February of 1973, so they had been playing them live for a long time. And now again, the key was bringing them in, and they brought in some elements that weren't too usual for the Dead: some horns, some backup singers, some fiddle. They had a Vassar Clemens. They had um, they brought in some some neat musicians. Um, and they hadn't really done, they'd done it a little bit more with friends on, on working man's dead and American beauty. Some of the new riders and, and Ned Lagan and, and, uh, Howard Wales, uh, Dave Torbert. So those albums had had, but those were more kind of friends and stuff. This was, you're bringing some horn players, you're bringing Vassar Clemens who Jerry had played with in his bluegrass outfit, Olden in the way. So you get this incredibly, I think a very complex record. And it's, um, to me, Unlike, once again, and this is what I love about The Dead, it's unlike anything they'd done before, and yet it was, once again, another exceptional record. It's not like, like a lot of bands, I think, stray from what makes them that band, and it doesn't always work, because they're straying for the sake of straying, they don't want to get tired. The Dead, the Dead, I don't think The Dead were ever, you know, well, we have to change because we can't just keep sounding that way. I, I honestly think they changed their sound or their songwriting because it was what inspired them at the time. It wasn't about a formula by any means. The Dead are very clearly not a formulaic band. They went with what struck them. And I think Wake of the Flood for 1973 Dead is the perfect encapsulation of that version of the Grateful Dead. It was a a jazzier band and there's horns in it. Um, A a lot of these songs could turn into easily, I'm I'm talking about Wake of the Flood, I'm sorry, uh, Here Comes Sunshine and uh, Weather Report Suite eyes of the world these songs all of them clocked in it oftentimes well over 10 minutes in the live setting in 1973 and 74 uh eyes of the world occasionally would clock in close to 20 minutes um here comes sunshine over 10 minutes weather report suite um you know i'm thinking a little later in the 70s but 17 minutes so it these are songs that again we can always go back to the studio recording of these songs as the baseline, the one that the band wanted to define these songs. And then we can go explore where the dead would take them, just as the dead would take the, the, the studio recording as the baseline and go anywhere they want with it. You know, it's so I find them to be exceptional songs. Once again, most of these songs are still uh, part of the dead's repertoire with dead and company, uh, with Phil's band. These are again, another batch of songs. And I'm thinking of Stella blue and eyes of the world and road Jimmy. And, you know, road Jimmy was famously, uh, Jerry was quoted as when asked once, what's your favorite song to play live with the dead? And that's a hard question. I bet with a guy who's got a hundred uh, at any time, a hundred songs and overall over 200 songs to play with the dead. Um, road, he said, road Jimmy was one of, if not his favorite song to play live with the Grateful Dead. So, um, and you, you can sense that joyousness on the album. Um, and then you can listen to, you know, the album came out October of 73. You can listen to shows from right then. They did a tour in September, another tour in October of 73, and then a monumental November and December of 73. And you can see that these brand new songs, people who have just bought this record, they would have been knocked out by these. These are just uh, the, the live versions of these songs are absolutely stunning and that's you know these are people again you buy the record you listen to it a few times before you go because the dead are coming to your town and then they do that with those versions i mean these are fans for life and i think because again they're incredible songs but when you saw those songs live it just knock you on your seat so you touched on something i was curious about and i asked the last person i interviewed about um who's who's buzz pool who wrote the the 33 and a third book um, on Working Man's Dead. 
Um, so I was, I was talking to him about Wake of the Flood and about them being on their own label. And I was curious if he thought that them being on their own label had any like material impact on the way the album Wake of the Flood actually sounds. Um, and his response to that was that the dead are going to do what they want to do um, and that he thinks that this this album would essentially sound the same um, regardless. Is is that something you agree with? Do you feel like being on their own label and having just like complete control across the board had any impact on the way the album actually sounds? I, I do agree with that. And I say that because Aoxa Moxoa, uh, the, the previous studio recording to Working Man's Dead, that's the one that essentially came very near to bankrupting the dead where Warner Brothers paid a, a, a huge amount of money to get that album made because the dead were in the, the studio for so long and they were experimenting with everything. It was a brand new 16 track recorder. So under the auspices of Warner Brothers, they very, very clearly did whatever they wanted. And, and, and even though they were had to pay for that um, and it essentially put them in, in a hole that was so deep that they not only had to make sure that their next studio recorded well, their next, big album was live dead that doesn't cost that much it's a live record their next one after that working man's dead only took a couple of weeks to record no experimentation just a couple of weeks buckled down in the studio um i think wake of the flood again they didn't have their own studio they didn't have unlimited time so it's not like they were in there with a oxamoxoa type of ideas they had to go to a, a proper recording studio they, they recorded in sausalito california at the plant um, so they certainly had those restrictions and now that they were paying with it, paying for it, as opposed to Warner brothers paying for it and then getting reimbursed anyway. Um, I don't think it changed at all. I think that if they had been inspired to include horns and, you know, a, a couple background singers, which when I say background singers, they didn't, you know, they brought in people they knew, um, if they'd wanted Bastard Clemens on fiddle on, on, uh, American beauty or working men's. And I think they would have done that. I certainly do. And I think the songs, um, I, I, are certainly songs that had nothing to do with um, that weren't designed specifically to record an album that was for their own label as opposed to a Warner Brothers record. This is just where the dead were at. And the dead and, and particularly Hunter and Garcia were incredibly prolific um, from like 69 through you know the mid-70s where they were writing a lot of songs and not only a lot of songs, a lot of really, really good songs, um, really exceptional. So I think that if anything, it's just, you know, the dead being prolific, writing songs that maybe the songs are a little different than American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Um, but they're still clearly, that's what I love about the dead is that even though they might be a little different, they're still very, very clearly Grateful Dead records. Um, there's no doubt. And that's what I always love about the dead is that no matter how different they might sound one era, one year to the next, they still very clearly sound like the Grateful Dead. So I think that this album, uh, I don't think much changed. I don't think they decided to make something more commercial because we can't afford to not make money on this. I don't think they were any less commercial thinking, hey, we've got complete freedom to do what we want. I think they just wanted to make the very best record they could, as they always did. And the same thing went for Aoxamoxoa. They didn't just experiment for the sake of experimenting. They thought they would get the best record possible out of um, the Aoxamoxoa sessions. And I think they did. I think they, they got exactly what they wanted. Again, capturing the live Grateful Dead sound in the studio in 1969 is very tough, which is why Live Dead, I think, is such a uh, critically successful record, because it does capture the live sound of the Grateful Dead, because it was recorded live. I think Working Man's uh, uh, Wake of the Flood um, certainly is the Grateful Dead of 1973. 
so when I was kind of like doing some research and some listening um, with Wake of the Flood and then the next album that sort of paired with Wake of the Flood, Terrapin Station, um, and especially, you know, comparing them to the first couple albums or featuring studio albums or featuring in the box set. Um, I noticed um, like Keith Godcho's influences kind of kept coming up as well as Donna Godcho's. So um, can you kind of walk through what their influence, like how their influences show up on these two albums? Well, I think um, Keith, I think from the, the literally the second he joined the band, um, was the exact right fit. And uh, you can listen to, you'll hear his beautiful piano playing on um, on A Wake of the Flood, on the next couple of records that came out on Grateful Dead Records in 1974 and 75. And then with Terrapin Station, he was not only playing incredible piano, he was also playing incredible other keyboard sounds, key, electric keyboards. And Donna Jean... Uh, uh, Donna Jean always sounded, I think, great in the studio. I think she sounded wonderful in the studio. Live, she had a tough time hearing herself, and that was just the nature of the Grateful Dead's sound system. So in the live setting, uh, in 73, 74, uh, occasionally she didn't uh, didn't hear herself that well, um, so it's hard to be exactly in the right key on pitch. But in 76, when the Grateful Dead came back after a two year hiatus, and I guess they had all their little sound things uh, fixed in terms of monitors and being able to hear yourself. Donna never, to me, never sounded better than she did live in 76 and 77. She sounded magnificent. If you listen to a song like, like Cassidy or looks like rain, anything that she does, music never stopped. Anything she does kind of a two part lead harmony with Bob Weir. And there's quite a few songs like that. Um, and then on Terrapin Station, Donna Jean, I think that's where it all came together for her in terms of being, she was certainly, uh, you know, I think considered a backup singer, but um, she wasn't. She was a co-lead singer on a lot of these songs. And I'm thinking Estimated Prophet, Samson and Delilah, Dancing in the Street, and then incredibly strong, con- oh, and then her own song, of course, Sunrise, where she uh, got to have a, a full Donna song on a Grateful Dead record, which is amazing. Um, And she did another one on the next album in 1978. And I also think her contributions to Jerry's Terrapin Station on side two uh, are really some of her finest, more background contributions. But I think on side one, it's really where you get to hear her exerting herself as kind of a co-lead vocalist and an incredibly talented one. Um, And again, it's, it's her co-lead vocals um with bob and and it again it's those songs estimated dancing um that in samson delilah where you really get to hear how wonderful she sounds how again her contributions are part of what defined the grateful dead sound in that era and keith as well but um keith uh you know keith had been in the band and from the moment he joined the band in, in october of 1971 uh, he was a perfect fit, I, I think, and I think a lot of people would agree. Donna had some kind of ups and downs, and it wasn't because of her singing. It was, I think, because of, of sound things, whereas by 76 and into 77, they recorded that album in early 77, uh, late winter, early spring, and she sounded so good. Um, you know, I listen to that album all the time, and, and as you said, it's something that really jumps out at you is how prominent she is and how great she is. So I, I, I love what Keith and Donna were contributing by 76 and, and with the studio recording of Terrapin Station in 77. So Terrapin Station is the last studio album we have in this box set, um, both in order and chronologically. 
Um, so what do you think that this album says about the evolution of the band, especially considering where we started our journey, our, our studio album journey, at least with Working Man's Dead? Well, for the first time since uh, American Beauty, the dead were working with an outside producer. And uh, where they had Steve Barncard in American Beauty, uh, the next three records, which were Wake of the Flood, Mars Hotel, and Blues for All, those were the dead recording with themselves as producer or their, or their in-house staff, um, their crew. But um, it was the dead producing themselves. And then in uh, 1976, with the um, closing up of Grateful Dead Records, they signed a long-term deal with Arista Records. And, and Clive Davis had a vision for the dead. He was going to make them uh, a hit band uh, no matter what. And, and Clive had a, had a good track record with making bands you know, who, whether they had success or not before, he made those bands uh, some some true uh, hit uh, bands. And he saw that in The Grateful Dead. He'd always been a fan of The Dead and always wanted to work with them. So in 77, he was finally given the opportunity on Arista, his new company. And uh, he decided what they needed was an outside producer. And they needed somebody with a track record with making hit records. And that was Keith Olsen. Keith had worked, uh, Keith's discography was pretty darn impressive and it would get more so even but he'd worked with you know Fleetwood Mac um as they as they really started getting successful so they brought in Keith Olsen uh I think for two reasons one to uh to make a good record but also hopefully turned it into a hit record and the dead right after they recorded that uh Terrapin Station they went on tour uh, April and May of 1977 and it's widely considered not only one of the best tours the dead ever did, but one of the tightest tours. They were incredibly uh, tight in terms of um, being in sync and in terms of the power and in terms of uh, the energy. And a lot of that is attributed to Keith kind of snapping them into shape um, with what he did. And that's why you get such a precision record. I don't think it was the hit record that uh, Clive and Keith Olsen had wanted but I certainly do think it was uh, something like the Grateful Dead had never done. And you can see what they were trying to do in order to get something that might have been, you know, the commercial breakthrough that the dead had. All, I don't want to say the dead had always wanted, but that um, I think the dead were due. And it, it took another 10 years. It took In the Dark in 1987 for them to finally have that commercial breakthrough with a bona fide hit record. Now, a song like Truckin' was a hit and the dead, you know, had some decent chart positioning with working man's dead, American beauty, Europe, 72, things like that. But they never had the hit right out the shoot that they would have in 1987 within the dark. They tried for that with Terrapin station. It didn't quite hit, but um, it's still a great album. It's something that here we are 43 years later. And it's something that I listened to as one of my favorite grateful dead studio recordings, very unlike anything they had ever done before or after, but an incredibly cool, deep record. Hmm. Yeah, no, um, yeah, Terrapin Station is, it jumps out to me among these albums as just being unique and even maybe like the most complex or robust of the studio albums that are featured here and particularly the, the title track um, or like the Terrapin Station medley. Um, so especially if folks are listening for the first time, um, what are some moments on this album that are worth paying special attention to? Um, I think, as you say, it's a very deep record, complex, and I do think that hearing the ambition of the record, and whether that's the Grateful Dead's or I think a lot of it was Keith Olsen's, I know that things like the the uh, uh, choir chorus in, in the background on Terrapin Station was something Keith added uh, without the band's 
full knowledge. I mean, he sent the tapes off um, and got this recorded, and they, they ended up going with it. And likewise, the um, the uh, orchestra, the background uh, music on Terrapin Station, again, was something that was very, I don't want to say ungrateful dead. I, I consider nothing the Grateful Dead have ever done to be ungrateful dead. If they did it, it's grateful dead, period. Um, but it was unlike anything they'd ever done before like that. I also think some of the horn playing, and I think of the horn on um, the sax on, uh, ter- on uh, Estimated Prophet as some of the most interesting stuff. I find Estimated Prophet to be one of Bob Weir's, one of the Grateful Dead's most interesting songs uh, lyrically. And for me, largely the, the, uh, the instrumentally, the, the music of that is one of the most interesting dead songs ever. So I would certainly uh, want people to pay attention to Estimated Prophet. Uh, Dancing in the Street, the old Motown classic, Martha and the Vandellas, we all know that arrangement. The Dead brought it back in 1976, recorded it for Terrapin Station in 77, and it's where the dead got the rap of being disco dead for 1977 and 78 because it's got a distinct slightly discified arrangement, but again, certainly clearly Grateful Dead when you listen to what they were doing underneath the kind of maybe straightforward disco beat of, of, and it's not a disco beat, but that's what it got kind of the rap on being, but you'll hear what Jerry and Phil are doing underneath. You also get an incredibly interesting song by Phil Lesh um, called Passenger. Bob sings it. Bob and Donna, again, I bring up the Bob and Donna co-lead vocal thing on Passenger. And that's a song written by Phil. And Phil always wrote, uh, he didn't write many songs, but the ones he wrote are always incredibly interesting. So side one is filled with these interesting kind of um, uh, anomalies for the Grateful Dead. And I'm talking Estimated Prophet in its 7-4 time. you got Dancing in the Street and this new discified arrangement, nothing at all like the Martha and the Vandellas um, Motown arrangement. You got Passenger, which is a classic Phil Lesh composed song, which is to say it's very different from anything you've ever heard, which I love. It was Phil's attempt to let the Grateful Dead play, as he said, with some raunch. It, it was a, a very powerful song, and in the live setting, it just smoked. They played it till the early 80s live, and it's just wonderful. Um, again, Bob and Donna's co-lead vocal. Um, and then you got Donna Jean doing Sunrise, and you got another classic old song, and I mean an old song going back 50 years or more, called Samson and Delilah, that the Dead had brought into the repertoire in 1976. Bob Weir arranged it, and that's another great song. Again, Bob and Donna doing some some wonderful stuff on that. So, and, and then side two, I don't want to say goes without saying, but side two uh, is one of the most ambitious pieces of music the Grateful Dead ever did. It's a, a, a several-part song. Um, that every part is incredibly interesting. And the drummer's contributions is just wonderful. Phil and Bob's is incredible. And of course, Jerry and Donna and Keith, um, everybody's contributing. Then add to that the, let's call them recorded flourishes that Keith Olsen was inspired to add, makes it, um, as you said earlier, one of the most deep, one of the deepest, most complex piece of studio recording the dead were ever involved with. Absolutely. Um, so we, we've listened to Terrapin Station, like listeners who are kind of working their way through this box set. Um, what does what we hear on this record kind of point to what we're about to hear on Reckoning and Without a Net in our, in our final kind of iteration or um, episode of, of this box set? What I absolutely love about The Dead, and it's uh, kind of touched on this, is how different they are record to record. And the Reckoning, Grateful Dead has absolutely no relation to Terrapin Station, except it is so you so clearly 
Grateful Dead music. What what Reckoning is, it's the Dead in their 15th anniversary year. They did about uh, five weeks of shows in San Francisco and New York. They did long residencies where they, for the first time in a decade, played acoustic sets. And Reckoning is the very best four sides, two LPs of the Dead's acoustic sets in 1980. So it's much, much more akin to Working Man's Dead and American Beauty um, hearing the the kind of acoustic stripped down Grateful Dead, where they were playing, you know, a, a good mix of old uh, standard uh, like classic bluegrass and and country stuff, and then a few classic Grateful Dead songs. You got Cassidy and Ripple, um, China Doll, uh, just a, a lot of really interesting songs, um, and but done acoustically, where everybody, including Brent, was playing uh, piano as opposed to organ or electric keyboard. Brent also played harpsichord on this record um, in the live setting on, on China Doll. So you get um, an incredibly beautiful record. This is a record uh, very similar to Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, that when I want to turn somebody onto the Grateful Dead who has never heard them, might have kind of a bias that they think they might not like them, um, I usually give them Working Man's Dead or American Beauty, or I give them Reckoning. If, if, I, if I get a sense that this person is into beautifully recorded acoustic music, I will give them Reckoning and generally always turn them on. It's an incredibly well-recorded record um, that really harkens back to the very best of Working Man's Dead and American Beauty in terms of the Grateful Dead at their purest acoustic sound. And, uh, and uh, uh Without a Net, recorded in 1989 and 90, again, is very, very different from the Terrapin Station version of The Grateful Dead. Still very clearly the same band with one difference that that um, uh, Donna and Keith had left, uh, just as they had for Reckoning. Brent Midland was in the band for those final 11 years up to the recording of um, uh, Without a Net from 79 to 90. But aside from that, it was still the same guys. It was still Billy, Mickey, Bob, Phil, and Jerry. So it's still clearly Grateful Dead. But 89, 90, was, you know, I mentioned this earlier that the dead had several creative peaks and you can look at 77 as one of them. You can look at 73. And these are all peaks that we're talking about in this box. 72 with Europe, 72, the two uh, 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 albums from 1970. And then 89, 90 is widely considered yet another peak in the Grateful Dead's trajectory. Um, A really big peak, actually. Uh, They had their big hit success in 1987 within the dark kind of the hangover of that in 1988. But in 89, they came back on fire, just incredible shows uh, that really lasted for about 18 months until Brent passed away in the summer of 90. Then again, it took them a little bit to get rolling again. And then by 91 with the new keyboard player plus Bruce Hornsby, um, they were back at another creative peak. So it was, there were a lot of creative peaks. There weren't too many really low, low points, but there certainly were some high, high peaks. And when they were, um, that's kind of when the best records seem to happen, whether they're studio or live. Um, when those peaks happen, that's generally when it would be uh, time for um, a great album. And that's exactly what this box set is filled with. The Dead's, you know, eight great albums recorded at eight distinct, or not eight distinct peaks, but at very defined creative peaks. David discussing the Dead's creative peaks, while also considering how the studio albums varied from one to the next, was a pretty critical moment to my understanding of the Dead. I think the two most essential things I learned during this experience is that the Grateful Dead are anything but linear, 
And while they had many creative peaks, the definition of what peak takes the cake is going to change from person to person. And that's kind of the point. I came into this project wondering how the dead modified or bottled a sound most suited toward live shows into something that fit the studio, and the answer is that they didn't. The studio albums are just snapshots of where the band were at in that moment in time and exactly how they wanted to capture it. To send you off, I'll leave you with these words from Tony Brown. The last question I had is, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in the dead but perhaps a bit overwhelmed or intimidated by their massive catalog? Music is there to move you. If it doesn't move you, walk away. But you will find something within the Grateful Dead's catalog that you will be drawn to. Shakedown Street, Box of Rain. You know, you can go for every end of the spectrum, something psychedelic. I love that whole... um, uh, the, the Oxamoxoa stuff and it, you know you can go really spacey or you can just get bluesy or gritty and by the way seeing pig pen was an interesting experience for me so go back to those early tapes if you can find them but as and they're all on albums now you can go into the Grateful Dead catalog now and get anything you want. So don't be intimidated by understanding the Grateful Dead. They will reveal themselves to you and you will change. I love that. That's really been one of my favorite things about learning about the dead and kind of going through this whole experience. Um, Everyone really seems to be taking what they need and really taking something different from their music. There doesn't really seem to be a right way. And I think that can be really freeing. There's so much there. Just Dig in. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add or share with everyone? If you get confused, listen to the music play. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is executive produced, written, and hosted by Andrew Winnesdorfer and me, Amelia Sutliff. It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Jonah Graber. This episode was recorded in my bedroom, uh, so shout out Pandemics again, uh, and a very special thanks to Tony Brown and David Lemieux for enriching my dead journey and lending me a hand in getting on the bus. And remember, listen to more China Cat Sunflower. Shadows from the flames of the world, till things we've never seen seem familiar.